Welcome to episode number three. I'm your host, Andrew Cameron. So in the first episode, I talked about what made me think monopolies are the issue and causing problems in our small towns. The second episode, we looked at where we are today with our competition bureau and competition policy. And today I want to go way back. I want to look at where we started with everything. We're going to go back to 1912. We're going way back. And we're going back to an article that I found that was written by William Lyon Mackenzie King in 1912. So this article comes from the Annals of the American Academy of Political and Social Science, July 1912, Volume 42, Industrial Competition and Combination, pages 149 to 155. And I'll post a link to the PDF of this article in the show notes for anybody else who wants to go in and read this. So Mackenzie King, for those of you who don't remember, he was Prime Minister of Canada three separate times, from 1921 to 1926, 1926 to 1930, in 1935 to 1948. So he was prime minister during World War II and the end of the Great Depression. Mackenzie King was also the former Minister of Labor of Canada at this time, and he was the author of the Combines Investigation Act, and when he was Minister of Labor, it was passed through Parliament in 1910. And so this article was written in 1912 about the passage of the Combines Investigation Act. And the Combines Investigation Act has been modified and amended many times over the 76 years until it was replaced with the Competition Act in 1986. There also was a previous version before this, but I want to start with this version of the Combines Investigation Act in this paper specifically because Mackenzie King really gets at what they were trying to accomplish with the passage of this act. So the Combines Investigation Act, according to this article, came from the apparent successes of the Industrial Disputes Investigation Act that was passed in 1907. So the Industrial Disputes Investigation Act minimized labor battles between capital and labor. And people thought, and parliamentarians thought, that a similar investigation act of industrial combinations would help prevent abuses of producers and consumers by these conglomerates, by these large businesses. So one thing to keep in mind when we're talking about combines in this context, we're talking conglomerates, we're talking large businesses, we're talking multiple businesses that have merged and literally combined into one. And that's who they're targeting through the Combines Investigation Act. One thing I find very interesting about the Industrial Disputes Investigation Act is Parliament decided to use the threat of publicity as a deterrent for wrongdoing by labor or capital. And so Parliament was hoping that the threat of publishing bad behavior of either capital or labor would prevent a lot of labor strife, a lot of battles, and would prevent a lot of harm being done to third parties due to conflicts of private interests. And so this threat of publicity carried over into the Combines Investigation Act. And we'll talk more about that later, but it's an interesting thought process that I don't know quite applies today. So again, from this article, Mackenzie King outlines that the structure of the Combines Investigation Act, especially for investigations, is structured the same as they were under the Industrial Disputes Investigation Act. So when a complaint is lodged under the Combines Investigation Act, 
a board is formed. It's usually three members, one needing to be a judge. And the board is given the power to summer witnesses under oath and the ability to request documents, books, papers, or anything else that they think is necessary for the investigation. And so this was not a permanent board. This was a board that was established when a complaint was filed. Something else that I, again, very interesting that probably doesn't work too well today is in this draft of the Combines Investigation Act, six Canadians could file a complaint. And if six Canadians filed the complaint, that was enough to start an investigation. And I know for sure that this wouldn't work today. Like I remember, I think I was in university and I think it was, uh, I think it was Stockwell Day wanted to pass something in parliament that if enough people put their names on this petition or signed a petition, that parliament would have to review it. Then Rick Mercer went on and formed a petition that Stockwell Day had to change his name to Doris Day. And that was the end of that. That's one example. The other one is the few years ago when the uh, UK government put naming a, a ship out to the internet to poll and they named it Bodie McBoatface. I think we'd be doing investigations under this all the time if it only took six people to lodge a complaint. Anyways, moving back to this. Okay, so the complaint is lodged, the board is struck, and the investigation is completed. So if a combine is found, the legislation gives a variety of options to resolve the situation. And quoting from the report, the selection of which will depend on the nature of the restriction or evil discovered. I want to pause here just for a second to talk about the fact they described it as the evil discovered. The few of these older reports I've read, I love them. They, the language they use, there's a morality to them that just doesn't exist in our current reports. Our current reports you know, relies so much, are very technocratic, very chart-driven, data-driven, which has its place and is good. But these reports are full of morality. And these reports aren't arguing about what the proper marginal tax rate for people making over $75,000 a year is. They're arguing about what is right for our society and what's wrong for our society. And in this report, they've decided that abuse of powers and abuses, business practices is wrong and that we don't want it. No matter the efficiency, no matter the potential benefit to anybody, we've decided this is wrong and we just don't want it to happen. So I don't want to bring back all the moral standards from the 1910s and the 1912s. There'd be a lot there that I don't like. I would like us to start thinking about them in the context of at least economics amongst other areas. And I would like for us to create our own for today for us that will work for us. Okay, I'm going to go back to this article in this report. So I'm going to jump to page 153, because this is the part of the whole paper that I find the most interesting and most relevant to today. So quoting from the paper, Mackenzie King says, It will be seen that in dealing with industrial combinations, the Parliament of Canada has shaped its policy in the light of three important considerations. So point number one. First, that it is the possible inimical or inimical in a Macau? Not sure. I looked this word up, it means harms. Okay, so let me start again. First, that it is the possible inimical effects of combination and not combination as such that is to be aimed at in legislation. So Mackenzie King is saying they're not trying to stop big businesses and they're not trying to stop big businesses from forming. They're trying to stop the abuse of practices that big businesses are 
capable of, and in the past have done. So this was a fascinating point for me to see, because in our discussions about monopolies and about anti-monopoly today, most people who are criticizing antitrust rules in the US or competition probably in Canada feel the need to preface everything they have to say with, I'm not saying big is bad, because for me, it feels like if you don't say that, if you don't preface it, the first counter argument throwing at you is, you're just saying big businesses are bad. You just don't like big businesses. And for me, that's a way, or I feel like that's a way for other people to try to dismiss the argument and not to have to engage with critiques that anti-monopolists and people who want to see changes to competition policy actually need to make. So I feel like you have to put that out there first to try to eliminate that fake counter-argument to be made. And I find it fascinating that Mackenzie King was doing the exact same thing in 1912. So back to the report, quoting, There's impliedly an admission that combination not only is not a bad thing, but that it is an inevitable and necessary development. Recognizing the industrial trend of the times, it is frankly conceded that exception cannot well be taken by the state to a trust or a combine or a merger as such, or to these industrial combinations doing all that is justifiable to further the interests of those whose capital they employ. This comment or this point is saying that there are benefits when companies combine. Like bigger companies do gain efficiencies and are able to offer more services or lower prices or different things like that. Kenzie King is also commenting that the expectation is companies and combinations will work to further the interests of those who have invested in the owners of their company, and that's reasonable for us to expect and for them to do. But he says the second half of this that we don't talk about anymore. On the other hand, it is not less clearly foreseen that the very necessity and inevitability of large combination mean that tremendous power becomes vested in the hands of a few, and that with this consolidation of great power, the sense of obligation on the part of those entrusted with the shaping of policies and management of affairs is likely to be felt primarily with reference to the concern itself and those who are investors in it, and only secondarily to the public whose interests become subordinate to special corporate interests. I mean, I just watched the newest Spider-Man last week. This is, with great power comes great responsibility. That's this comment. But when Aunt May or Uncle Ben said this comment to Peter Parker or Spider-Man, they were talking about the public and to people in general. In this situation, Mackenzie King is saying the responsibility for these large corporations will always be to their owners or their investors. So when they amass great power, they will use that power responsibly to benefit themselves. Or, as we've known since the 1970s, 1980s, maximize shareholder value. And this is one of those things that I feel like I see in Amherst as we'll say local retail has died off, right? Like I talked a lot about my mom's store or the malls that were full of independent retail stores. The success of those stores were so dependent on the community, right? Amherst needed to do well for my mom's store or Dale's the department store downtown to succeed. So it was always necessary for the local businesses to make money and make a profit but they could not become so powerful that they could extract from the community because if they started to extract from the community, the community would suffer and ultimately their business would suffer. But where we've let large companies form, Amazon, Walmart, you know, these large retailers, 
they're not dependent on one community anymore. They can take from that community. They can just take more and more. And if that community fails, they can just pack up and go somewhere else, which is their interests well above the interests of the public, which Mackenzie King is identifying will happen if corporations and combines get enough power. Mackenzie King talks a lot about power in this section. I'm going to come back to that after one, but I want to go to the second point. It is tacitly implied that it is the duty of government to secure to the community some of the advantages which the community itself makes possible, and to conserve to those who compose the state, that would be people, some of the benefits which through its agencies, the state itself helps to create. The advantages of large organization are conceded, but it is recognized that the form of organization which enables wealth to become concentrated in the hands of a few and secures great commercial opportunities and powers is itself rendered possible only through conditions created by society of whose interest the state is the guardian and by the direct agencies of government itself. So he goes on to list a few of these. So one, peace and security, facilities of transportation and communication, banking, credit, you know, today we'd add in education, we'd add, add in health care. Like there's a lot that the government and we collectively offered that the private sector builds their businesses on top of. Like I think about that in context of myself of building apartments and developing real estate. Like, you know, we use town streets to get materials to our construction sites. Uh, there's, you know, the water and sewer pipes that come to our properties. There's the fire department, there's the police department, there's the building inspectors, there's the planning department. Beyond that, there's the safety agencies that are verifying products. So I know that they're safe to use in our apartments and nobody will be hurt by them. There's so much the government does that allows me to successfully build my business off of that. And that's what Mackenzie King is reminding everybody here. And he carries on to say, in other words, an organized community is essential to the work of production and distribution, and the extent of organization determines in large measure the possibilities and degree of both. In this view of the relation of industrial combination to the community, it becomes the duty of government to see that the interests of the many who compose the state are not sacrificed to the interests of the few whose power and opportunities they have helped to create. I read this as a reminder from Mackenzie King that we all helped create and contributed to the communities and the situations for businesses to be built and that we have to watch out and make sure that enough power isn't amassed that businesses can then start using that power to put their interests ahead of everybody else. And I think this is one of those things we've forgotten over the last 40 years and that we've let happen. I mean, think about like some of the tax games large companies can play where like software licenses are held by a subsidiary in Ireland and then all the profits from Canada or US are then shifted to Ireland so that companies in Canada and US don't have to pay any taxes. These are the things that Mackenzie King is talking about. And he's talking about the fact that the Combines Investigation Act is in place to prevent the amassing of enough power to allow businesses to change the rules to benefit themselves at the expense of everyone else. I often think about that like with Amherst, like in smaller towns again, is the municipal governments are on the bottom of the slope, we'll put it that way. Like the federal government can download costs and programs to the provincial government if they're looking to cut spending 
and the provincial government can then cut and download costs to municipal governments if they're looking to cut spending, but municipal governments can't. There's nobody else for them to send their costs to, especially because the things that municipalities typically are responsible for, water, sewer, police, fire, roads, recreation, even are tangible day-to-day things that people see. Also, I think one of the other things that happens is, you know, I see the mayor of Amherst out walking his dog all the time. I can stop and see him anytime. I can run into councillors at the grocery store. I'm not going to run into the prime minister or the premier. So there's a much more connected sense of community and feeling that if I have an issue with my sewer or water, I can find the mayor and talk to him very quickly and it's very tangible. But the specifics of defense spending at the federal level don't really impact my life on a day-to-day basis. So you have some of that dynamic, too, that impacts small towns. And I often think about it in the sense there's two towns not too far away, Spring Hill 15 minutes away and Parisboro 45 minutes away. They both actually dissolved. They've been towns for over 100 years. They had to dissolve in the last couple of years because Parisboro didn't have the money to put in a new sewage treatment facility. So they had to dissolve and join the county. In Spring Hill, it was similar. They just didn't have the money to do it. Because costs just kept getting downloaded and downloaded. Because over the last 40 years, large businesses have amassed enough power to change the taxes that they're paying. So they haven't been paying what was previously their fair share. And eventually we see that and we feel that in our day-to-day impacts on our small towns and on our communities. All right, and back to the third point that Mackenzie King makes about the Combines Investigation Act. Again, quoting, Lastly, it is recognized that there are certain evils in prevention and removal of which publicity is more effective than penalty. So I talked about this one before, that they wanted to try to use shaming and public shaming to more control behavior, more so than penalties after the fact. And maybe that worked when you were more dependent on a community or if you were a business person and you would run into your customers at church or at supermarket or coaching on sports team. Like if you were connected to the community and you suffered some sort of social cost from that publicity. But I don't think that's the case today. I also think we've gone far to the other extreme to some extent with our competition policy where results of investigations aren't published. We don't know what happens in these investigations. We don't know what they find out. I would love to see more publicity actually come back but not in the sense of trying to shame away bad behavior, but just making the public and making us all more aware of what's actually happening in our economy and within different markets. So the rest of that article is conclusion wrap-up. I've posted a link if anybody wants to go read it. It's not that long of an article, and it's not as convoluted as some old reports are. I wanted to go back to this to compare what Mackenzie King was saying about the Combines Investigation Act to what the Competition Act is. There was no mention of efficiency or consumer welfare or maximizing economic output. And those are some of the things that talked about in our current Competition Act. Mackenzie King talked about power, and that's a phrase that we don't talk about anymore. And we just pretend doesn't exist. But it does, and it always will. There are power imbalances throughout society, throughout our communities, throughout families. We have to stop pretending it doesn't exist. And for me, power determines, you know, who gets to speak, who gets to make decisions, who has control. And Mackenzie King was saying that the Combines Investigation Act was created to make sure that power stayed in the hands of the public. 
not amass in the hands of a few who will then use that power to further their interests at the cost of everyone else, including small towns like Amherst, small businesses like the ones that are missing now, and individuals. And that's what I want us to remember, especially this year because we're talking about reforming the Competition Act. That Competition Policy and Competition Act is our way to determine and ensure that power is diffused throughout our society. Because I want small towns, I want small businesses, I want people to have power, and I want them to have control over their own lives and their own futures again. Thanks for listening to the show. We'll be back in a couple weeks with our next episode. And if you enjoyed this, please subscribe in your favorite podcast app. What are you doing a small town after the movie shows Main Street is struggling. Monopolies killed my hometown.